This is Anne-Marie Lewis, and you are listening to We Are Rivers, conversations about the rivers that connect us, brought to you by American Rivers. In 2007, the state sharing the Colorado River recognized the likelihood of future shortages in river flows and agreed on guidelines about how these shortages would be managed. Among other things, these 2007 guidelines spell out how the lower basin states of Nevada and Arizona would reduce water consumption if Lake Mead were to drop below 1,075 feet. However, with persistent drought and no sign of alleviation, Lake Mead is currently hovering at 1,087 feet. And so a new agreement is currently under negotiation called the Drought Contingency Plan, also referred to as the DCP. The DCP aims to keep more water in the Colorado River for both ecological and anthropogenic ends. As the Colorado River Basin's biggest push towards ensuring a more sustainable and certain future for Colorado River management, the plan is very important to understand. In this episode of We Are Rivers, join us for a conversation between Katherine Sorensen and Jeff Odethy, delving into the many facets of the Drought Contingency Plan. Catherine Sorensen is the director of the Phoenix Water Services Department, which provides drinking water for 1.7 million people at 430,000 delivery points and wastewater treatment for 2.5 million people within a 540-square-mile area. Catherine's day-to-day work is an incredibly complicated puzzle that changes from hour to hour. Jeff Odafi is the director of American Rivers' Clean Water Supply Program which focuses on working with municipalities to make sure communities have access to safe, clean water, along with a wide range of other duties. Today, I was focused on how do I find funding in Grand Rapids, Michigan, to this afternoon, a conversation about how do we sustain the Colorado River as a supply, not only for cities like Phoenix and the surrounding area, but as a natural resource for all of us and as a wildlife corridor as a as a spiritual corridor as as a sustaining thing for our community i mean what's more important for the future of the west than whether we can sort out a collaborative management for the colorado river basin the overallocation of the colorado river has presented the west with a daunting task how to manage the river in a sustainable manner and currently during major and persistent drought the colorado river which as a water supply system sustains you know upwards of 40 million people across seven states is not as secure as we want it to be or believe it to be you know climate change and long-term drought and changing population demographics have built in a situation where there's less water coming through the system than is being taken out it is because of this overallocation that the West is faced with the daunting conservation predicament of how to conserve the Colorado River. One of the best ways to combat that overallocation is to keep more water permanently in the river in the form of system conservation. With system conservation, the water stays in the river permanently and benefits everyone, and providing that resiliency for communities everywhere. And that's, that's really important. This is Katherine Sorensen. And to elaborate on what she just said, system conservation of the Colorado River demands using less water in the lower basin so that it can be stored in Lake Mead to benefit the system as a whole. This storage benefits people and communities because a model that sustains Lake Mead's water levels will allow people and communities to predict and understand the long-term management of the Colorado. Something that which drives our work thematically is you know, working with communities and water users to 
give back to the river that gives to us all, right? So it's it is organic or holistic. It's it's a kind of reciprocal relationship, and acknowledging that by making investments in water storage that sustains and stabilizes the lake or the river. Now we know the drought contingency plan seeks to sustain the Colorado River through a systems conservation approach. But what exactly is the DCP? So let's be clear at the outset that, that, that we're talking about a lower Colorado River drought contingency plan today. There's a parallel effort for the upper basin. We're going to focus today on the lower basin drought contingency plan. As a reminder, the lower basin consists of the states of Arizona, Nevada, and California. The drought contingency plan is a collaborative effort between the array of users of the river, the people who depend, the communities who depend upon it, to more equitably respond to eventual shortages in the water supply and apportion those, you know, apportion voluntary cutbacks, uh, mandatory cutbacks across the states, across the eventual water users, so that we reach both stable levels in the reservoirs and in the river and stable levels of water consumption across the state. So it's kind of like the neighbors are all coming together to figure out how to resolve you know, some important issues around, uh, around the community. And the DCP plans to accomplish its goals by assigning water cutbacks. There are some new assignments of voluntary cutbacks to the states. So under the DCP, we're starting to contemplate Arizona, in particular, leading the way with some voluntary reductions. Under the proposed DCP, reductions to Arizona's Colorado River water use would kick in at Lake Mead Elevation 1090. And since we're already beneath that level, hovering somewhere around 1083 or 84, I think, this means that reductions would kick in basically immediately. So right off the bat, Arizona is stepping forward and saying, okay, so to, to preserve the lake, to, to avoid or delay these deeper cuts, these deeper levels of shortage, we'll, we'll, we'll go through some water. We'll undertake some water conservation measures. We'll shift the way we manage water resources in the lake, and we'll agree to some policy reforms that allow uh, storage in the lake to be created and accessed in different ways by different water users. And all of that has arguably the combined effect of reducing overall withdrawals from the lake, you know, right off the bat. But I, I want to mention one thing. The way that the DCP is structured, the cuts would be sort of voluntary and sort of mandatory. And I think the states came together and kind of agreed on this basic framework. But Ultimately, at least as I understand it, it would be implemented by a decision by the Secretary of the Interior and thus mandatory. Right. It's like, we're volunteering to take these cuts you're going to make us take. Yes, that's an accurate way to describe it. So the DCP, as proposed, is intentionally structured so that Arizona water users take additional cuts up front under the theory that doing so will help Arizona avoid even deeper cuts down the road. And under the DCP, if if Lake Mead elevations dip precipitously low, then California, Nevada, and Mexico also experience uh, more significant cuts to their entitlements. But it's, it's really not until you get to the lower levels of shortage, below 1035 down to 1025, that all the states really kick in. Yeah. The only, the, the most important thing here, maybe it's symbolic, is that at a certain level after Arizona has kicked in and after Nevada has kicked in, California will step up with some of the mandatory reductions also. And that's significant because 
California doesn't, under the current law of the river, under the 2007 guidelines, doesn't have to do that. They have more senior rights than, uh, than the Central Arizona Project rights. So it's politically significant that California is in this bargain as well. Yeah, that's true. I, I think also maybe something of interest as well is that the modeling shows that the collective cuts, what once you get down to these lower levels in the reservoir, are enough to diminish the probability that we will hit worst-case scenarios. But it's important to understand that, that providing safe, clean water, in our case, to 1.7 million people in the middle of the desert, and for other cities, equal numbers, it's, it's not a game of probabilities. We have to operate under perfect certainty. And collectively, hopefully, that's enough water to stop the decline. Now let's take a step back to discuss when and why the DCP was proposed. As my understanding, the DCP negotiations between the, the states really came out of the 2015 Bureau of Reclamation Basin study and the recognition in that study that there was really significant risk that Lake Mead would fall nearly to Deadpool by 2025, 2026. Recalling from episode five of this series, Glen Canyon, Deadpool refers to when a reservoir is so low that its water can no longer flow through the dam's turbines. In other words, water can't make it past the dam and electricity ceases to generate. But a greater awareness of the need to conserve the Colorado River is growing. I think that there has been a greater recognition of the instability of the Colorado River system and what that means for the communities um, across the basin, really, but Jeff's right, particularly in the lower basin. And, you know, when the, the operating guidelines that we operate under now, the so-called 2007 guidelines, when they were put together, that really established kind of a, a first guess, I will call it, at shortage tiers, cuts to users, and, and how that might work. And at that time, I, just, I don't think anyone really recognized the real impact that climate change might have on the Colorado River system. Of course, climate change was known. It was out there, and everyone understood it to be out there, but I think it was really in more recent years where folks came together and said, wait a minute, not only is this system over-allocated, but it's just, it's far less stable than what we first thought it was. And the drought contingency plan is an attempt to begin to address some of those issues. It's also great evidence of the we're all in it together approach to managing the Colorado River that's perhaps either the, the hidden story or the new story about river management and basin management. So it's a it's a evidence of a collaborative effort between the states and the water users in the lower basin to address systemic problems in the river and come up with solutions. To reiterate, the 2007 guidelines, discussed by both Catherine and Jeff, are what the DCP intends to update. The differences between the two can be a little confusing, so here are the exact differences between the two plans. Under the 2007 guidelines, when Lake Mead falls at or below a water level of 1,075 feet, Arizona would have to roll back a whopping 320,000 acre feet, and Nevada kicking in 13,000 acre feet. But under the proposed DCP, when Lake Mead falls at or below 1,090 feet, Arizona and Nevada would have to cut back a little over half of what the 2007 guidelines first cut would require. In other words, under the DCP, cutbacks to Arizona and Nevada come sooner but in less drastic intervals. 
Additionally, under the DCP negotiations, California would have to start reducing water consumption at Lake Mead water level of 1,045 feet. Both the 2007 guidelines and the DCP have more additional cuts at lowering levels. So, the two main differences between the two plans is that yes, the DCP cuts more water, but over a longer period of time. So the plan intends to put less shock on the system. And, as Jeff has mentioned, California would have to cut 200,000 acre-feet at Lake Mead water level of 1,045, with additional cuts with sinking levels. Unlike the 2007 guidelines, under the DCP, each of the three lower basin states would all have to agree to reduce water consumption. It is important to note here that Arizona by far receives the biggest chunk of the burden, having to cut back the most water at the soonest interval. So why exactly does Arizona get the rough end of the bargain? Arizona water users take cuts to, to Colorado River water before California because that was the deal we struck with California decades ago when we were trying to secure federal funding to build the Central Arizona Project Canal. Arizona agreed basically that the water rights and contracts established after 1968 would be lower in priority than those established before 1968. It's important to understand that most of the water rights in Yuma and the big agricultural area there and along the river in Arizona are pre-1968 and, and therefore roughly of equal priority as the water in California. But the water that's delivered to central Arizona, so to Phoenix, Tucson, and to the irrigation districts in Pinal County, those are all post-1968 and those are the lowest priority in Arizona. So it isn't really accurate to say that Arizona is the first to cut back water use if Lake Mead drops below 1075. It's really more accurate to say that central Arizona is the first to get cut. And then within central Arizona, there are different priorities for Colorado River water, of course, because, you know, this isn't going to be simple, right? The lowest in priority and the first to be cut during a shortage are users of something called excess water, which is basically water left over because entities with long-term contracts for Colorado River water aren't using it that year for some particular reason. Uh, maybe it, it rained a lot in Yuma and the, the farmers didn't need as much or demands were lower somewhere else and, and so this water becomes available. The current users of excess water include the um, something called the Central Arizona Groundwater Replenishment District and the Arizona Water Banking Authority. So when shortage comes to Central Arizona, they get cut first. And then next in line to be cut are the agricultural districts in Maricopa, Pinal, and Pima counties. And then third in line uh, are holders of long-term contracts for Colorado River water that is classified as non-Indian agricultural priority water. And the Gila River Indian community and the city of Phoenix are really the largest holders of this type of water, though most other cities in the Valley of the Sun have some of this water as well. And then fourth in line for cuts are holders of contracts for what's called municipal and industrial priority and Indian priority water. And, and those are kind of co-equal in priority. And it's mainly cities and Indian communities that have rights to, to this water. That's how it works today. And then under the DCP as proposed, those priorities basically remain the same, but the cuts occur sooner and in larger amounts than would be expected under the status quo. It's pretty tricky and complicated. And what it sets up is a, an interesting environment for 
you know, how can the state of Arizona come together to manage those impacts collectively or equitably, I guess. And that, Anne-Marie, is really kind of the heart of the internal conversation, you know, imposing those degrees of cutbacks on certain sectors of the water use community before other sectors. To stress the point, an internal Arizona agreement of how to equitably allocate water cuts must be reached. If not, those who have the most junior water rights in Arizona will adversely be negatively affected, mostly in central Arizona. This inequity is the greatest political obstacle that needs to be overcome in order for the DCP to become a political reality. Here, we can clearly see the importance of collaboration. You know, Arizona gives up most of the water yeah. under the DCP as proposed, and in amounts that come sooner and are larger than what would be experienced under the status quo, well, you can imagine people are already using that water. So, you know, you're asking folks to give up uh, current uses of water, and that's obviously always a really difficult proposition in the desert. So that's important to keep in mind. And, and the payoff really comes theoretically down the road. Some of those who experience the cuts up front are different from some of those who experience the benefits in the long run. So it's it's a tricky proposition. But water conservationists are working to push the DCP through, which ultimately will provide more stability through a systems conservation approach. Yet there are trade-offs at play, and it's a tricky political issue that provokes, quite frankly, awkward and heated conversations. But we must lean into these confrontational conversations that present a personal stake for so many people. And, you know, the word politics often, you know, is said in a derogatory manner, but it's really important that we have very open, I will say, confrontational dialogues about these issues because they are so important to so many people and they are so complex. So what I like to say is that the over-allocation of the Colorado River, it, it's a wicked problem. It's messy. It's complex. It's interdependent with other problems. Conditions are always changing. It has significant consequences that impact many people, and it involves trade-offs. The solutions available to us are, are basically incremental. They're really difficult to achieve, and all of that is playing out right now. But I remain optimistic precisely because people are willing to come to the table with these very disparate views, and everyone understands at the end of the day that whatever solution we come up with, it, it has to be collaborative. It's difficult and ugly at times, unbelievably unpleasant, but at the end of the day, it's collaborative, and, and that's how the best decisions are made. And I think it's important for Catherine, it's important for me, it's important for you, Emory, in the kind of journalism side, to tell complex stories. You know, we, we as people, as citizens, have the capacity to wrestle with wicked, complex problems. If we're given enough information, if we're invited into those dialogues or discussion about them, and that you know, if we're going to resolve the future of resilient communities in the arid Southwest, we need a public who's engaged in complex conversations about politics. And politics, hopefully, gives us uh, the flexibility to bend the rules but not break them, to find innovation space and opportunity in the loopholes or in the structure of the policies to, to adapt. It's messy and it's complex and it won't pass without further cooperative work within Arizona. But ultimately, we all need it. You know, everyone who lives in the Colorado River Basin or depends on its water, which is pretty much everyone in the Southwest, 
we all inherited this just incredible legacy of wise water management that dates back not just hundreds of years, but literally thousands back to the Native American communities that first dug the irrigation canals across the Southwest that we still depend on. That's why we are here and able to enjoy the quality of life that we have today. And, and our duty, all of us, our duty is to continue that legacy. There is no better way to sum up this podcast other than what Catherine just said. All of us who live in the Colorado Basin, we all inherited this problem, and we all must work together to fix it. My name is Anne-Marie Lewis, and thank you for listening to We Are Rivers, a podcast series about the rivers that connect us. Thank you.